Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So we've all heard the news. The Fed is going to drop rates, and therefore you should start buying stocks right now because we know that as soon as the Fed drops rates, oil, especially if they announce another round of quantitative easing, that the stock market is going to go parabolic to the moon, baby. <laughs> or... At least that's the mainstream narrative. Let's go ahead and look at the empirical data. Let's look at history and see what has happened in the past. Going over to an article from Zero Hedge, and I think one of the most underrated guys in the space is Lance Roberts. He still does a lot of podcasts with my good buddy Adam Taggart on Adam's new channel. I don't know if he's Lance is still doing stuff with Wealthy on. But uh, let's go over this blog post, and um, he points out some very interesting details, great charts, but there's some areas that I completely disagree with him, and I think he's got it wrong, and uh, I'll tell you why specifically, and we'll go over some charts to back up what I'm saying. But he starts off by highlighting the fact that, hey, guys, when the Fed drops rates, that ain't bullish. <laughs> Historically, that's very, very bearish. And I think his partner is Michael Leibowitz, and he has an earlier post called Fed Reserve Pivots Are Not Bullish. Quote, since 1970, there have been nine instances in which the Fed significantly cut Fed funds rate. The average, average max drawdown from the start of each rate cut to the bottom of the market was 27 0.25%, almost 30%. So check this this uh, chart out, guys. And I, this is what I talk about over and over and over again. So when I sit here and say that the market's insane and that we've never had a soft landing or no landing, and I sit here and talk, I sound like I'm crazy because it's so counter to what you hear when you turn on the news or you look at FinTwit or you watch Bloomberg or whatever. But when you actually look at the data, you see that I'm not talking just out of my out of my rear end here. <laughs> this is not my opinion for heaven's sakes. I'm just telling you guys what history shows us. That's it. So don't shoot the messenger. If you want to dispute this, dispute history. <laughs> All right, but here's a great chart. Fed funds, rate cuts, and max drawdown S&P. So this is this red line, obviously every single time here, we've got this after the Fed starts dropping rates. Very key, after, after they start dropping rates. And look at what happened in the GFC, by the way, or even the dot-com bust after the Fed stopped, or excuse me, after the Fed started dropping rates, which everyone tells us on CNBC is wildly bullish. In fact, you better front run this by buying stocks right now if you think the Fed is going to drop rates in 2024. Look at this, dot-com bust after the Fed dropped rates for the first time, a 44.67% drawdown. The GFC, 56.67. How about the Cervasa sickness? Remember that? I mean, the Fed came out, dropped rates to zero. And I know this is from when they dropped the first time in 2019 as a result of repo. But still, they come out guns ablaze and they committed everything to repo and QE infinity, blah, 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 blah. And I know for a fact, that stocks still went down. Now, I don't know what percentage, but from that first rate cut in 2019, they went down 
by 27.61%. And these aren't isolated instances. Go all the way back to 1967 or 1969, guys. This isn't George Gammon talking. I don't have the the tinfoil hat on. I'm simply looking at a chart. So why is it that none of these talking heads, none of these experts that you hear in the mainstream financial media ever bring this up? It's just, oh my gosh, the Fed's going to drop rates. Therefore, stocks have to skyrocket, even though it's never, ever, ever happened in the past. You see, that's the elephant in the room and why I get so animated, Ah, (laughs) so frustrated on these live streams because it's so obvious. It's right there. But yet no one, it's like at some point, is someone going to stand up and just say, hey, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. That's what I feel like I'm doing on every single one of these live streams when you compare it with the mainstream media. The mainstream media and the financial media, they're sitting there. Oh, yeah, look at, wow, the emperor. Look at those. Those clothes are fabulous. Did you see the emperor's new clothes? Oh, my gosh. They're amazing. Every single time you go to the CNBC homepage, every single story is about the emperor's new clothes. Everyone. And you're just waiting. You're just waiting for someone to stand up and say, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? And then all of a sudden, everyone agrees. But this is the, just history, data, facts. You would think that these experts would use this in their analysis or to come to their conclusions to talk about their base case, but they they completely ignore this. And that's why I get so frustrated. But Lance has got a lot of just incredible. That's just the first amazing chart that Lance goes over. Here he's talking about CAPE valuations. So this is basically, you know, taking the PE multiple and comparing it to times in the past. And when it's green, this means that stocks are overpriced relative to the norm. And when they're yellow, this means that they're underpriced. And this is a cyclically adjusted P-E ratio. And that's the black line. And so the green is deviation above, the green or orange, deviation above below the exponential growth trend. So when, oh, wow, look at this. I didn't, wow, this goes all the way back to 1871. Bravo, Lance. I love it when charts go back this far. This is Absolutely fantastic. So look at what we saw prior to World War II, World War I, excuse me. Uh, during World War II, the Great Depression, as you would imagine, stocks were pretty darn cheap. And uh, all the way up to the 1980s, stocks were unbelievably cheap. And if you look at the Buffett indicator, it points to the exact same thing. And by the way, guys, whenever you go to your financial planner, and they tell you that stocks always go up, just point to this chart and say, really? So if I would have invested in the stock market in, eh, let's say 1900, and then I would have checked out my stock portfolio in 1980, just look at this. How much green did we have and how much orange did we have? A lot more orange, right? And if you look at a specific chart of the S&P 500 adjusted for inflation from 1928 to 19. 80, 52 years, the stock market was flat. So if you would have invested $10 in the S&P 500 in 1928, 
you would have gone back and you would have given that portfolio to your kids and they would have given it to their kids and it would have gone down two or three generations. And you can imagine how excited the kids would be if they inherited this stock portfolio from 1928 in 1980. And they would have gone in there, oh my gosh, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be a millionaire. A stock portfolio from 1928. Oh my gosh. And they look in that stock portfolio after they inherited it from great grandma or whatever. And it's got the same 10 bucks that it started with adjusted for inflation. You see, that's what your financial planner never, ever tells you. They just show you charts going back to 1980, which, oh, by the way, we've been in a down cycle in interest rates. And most of those financial planners would admit that over the next 40 years, we're most likely going to be in an up cycle in interest rates. But they just, oh, look, a squirrel. And they just sweep that one under the rug. <laughs> Ah, uh, and I hate to be so hard on financial planners. I'm just using them as a proxy as kind of the, just the, the mainstream view of how to invest wisely. You know, if you listen to Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman or something like that. Okay, now let's go over some points where I completely disagree with what uh, Lance is saying and, and what his conclusions are. And what was funny is I heard Lance on Adam's podcast the other day and I heard him talking about QE, and I remember specifically, Lance said, if you don't think that QE impacts the stock market, just listen to what Ben Bernanke said in 2010. And I think it's, it's great that uh, Lance is actually referencing that, and he's referencing Ben Bernanke in 2010 right here in the article. So it gives me an opportunity to just say, give my rebuttal. Uh, and I actually text Adam, uh, and I text him a couple charts. I'm like, Look at this, but uh, he didn't text him back. I, I just, I try not to bug Adam very often <laughs> when I disagree with something his guest says. But right here, Lance points out that in 2010, Ben Bernanke introduced the neutral stimulus to the financial markets by adding a third mandate. So he's talking about kind of this idea of Pavlovian conditioning. And the idea here is that when you kind of ring the bell, this is the neutral stimulus. And when you do so, the dog starts salivating or whatever it is. And this is the same idea as to when the Fed starts announcing QE. This gives us this neutral stimulus. And then once they implement the, the QE, then you get this, um, what is the other one called? I'm not sure. Uh, the other one is called the neutral stimulus. Huh. It was right here. Well, we'll get into it. Uh, the potent stimulus. That's what it was. The potent stimulus. So here's Ben Bernanke. The approach, he's just talking about the wealth effect. So he's talking about when I do QE, interest rates go down. And therefore, investors go into risk assets because it changes the incentive structure. And that makes risk assets go up. And it also makes lending cheaper in the real economy. So then housing prices go up and this makes people more wealthy. This increases the size of their balance sheet, makes them feel more wealthy. They go out and spend money. And then it just has this Keynesian stimulus effect throughout the entire economy. That's the idea. But in order for this to be true, you would have to have interest rates go down when the Fed does QE. And again, this is another one of these elephants in the room that just drives me crazy, drives me crazy. And we'll get into specifically why in a moment here. 
So then Lance points out that for the conditioning, uh, the neutral stimulus when introduced, and he's talking about QE, must be followed by the potent stimulus. So they're talking about QE, and then they're going to implement QE. And then he shows this chart of the S&P 500. So what Lance is doing here is he's playing both sides of the coin, which is great. He's giving you this opinion, and he's giving that opinion, so you can come to your own conclusions here. And he's backing up with charts and data. I wish more people would do this. The, the problem I have is with this chart, and this is the mistake that I think uh, Lance is making. And again, I've got massive amounts of respect for Lance. I just think this is, might be a, a slight uh, oversight, which is understandable. Because my contention here is that he is showing the Fed's balance sheet. But what we're talking about when we talk about QE really isn't the size of the Fed's balance sheet when you get down to it. It's the amount of bank reserves. Because the argument there is that these reserves are going to give the banks additional balance sheet capacity, then they're going to be able to lend. And if the Fed is increasing the amount of reserves, and that means they're buying treasuries, and that's going to keep demand high, interest rates low, yada, 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 yada. But that doesn't really have to do with the Fed's balance sheet in its entirety. It just has to do with the amount of bank reserves. So as an example, let's just assume for a moment that there were additional bank reserves as a result of Janet Yellen spending down the TGA, right? Now, the Fed's balance sheet would not change the size of it. But the argument there would be, oh my gosh, you're adding all of this liquidity to the bank's balance sheets because you're adding bank reserves to the system. And therefore, what's likely going to happen because you got more bank reserves, you got more deposits, but then the banks have more balance sheet capacity to lend and you know, all these things, and that's going to translate to higher stock prices. That's the, the mechanism that they argue is at play without addressing the elephant in the room. But my point there is that one of the main components that drives this, are, according to what they say, is the amount of bank reserves. So they're just using the Fed's balance sheet as a proxy for the amount of reserves in the system. But this is inaccurate. You see, this black line is, in fact, the Fed's balance sheet. And you can see it flatline from, let's say, 2015 to 2018. Um, and then, you know, on net, it's down, if you extend it further, uh, from its starting point in 2015, it's down quite substantially when we get to 2019. But what they point out or what they fail to point out, is that the stock market during that time ripped higher. Now, you could say, look, George, it's because, and they, I think this is what they'd argue, the Eurozone QE. If you're going to argue for the Eurozone QE, increasing the stock market, then you've got to argue for the Japanese QE impacting the stock market. And I don't think anyone would argue that, especially prior to 2007. So I think that's a stretch, to say the least. But then I think the argument would be, well, it flatlined, but uh, you know, for other reasons it went up. But if you look at the overall chart, you're going to see a strong, strong correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and the stock market from 2014, basically, to 2019. The amount of reserves in the system, which is really what we're talking about, that, that's really what it goes back to Ben Bernanke in 2010. This idea that somehow the Fed's balance sheet impacts the stock market from a mechanic standpoint is all it revolves around bank reserves. So if you say, okay, let's set aside the Fed's balance sheet, look at the nuance, and you look at the actual reserves, you see that they were plummeting, plummeting. Now, why is this? Is it because they're doing QT? No, 
because Janet Yellen is filling up the TGA. So all these people are paying taxes or she's issuing treasuries or whatever, and she's just filling up the TGA. So what happens, all those reserves go from the accounts of the commercial banks down into the TGA. So effectively, it's the exact same thing as doing quantitative tightening. Exact same thing, except the Fed's balance sheet didn't budge. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Another thing I want to point out is that if this is after hearing all that, if it's still your argument that the Fed's balance sheet impacts the S&P 500 or that there's a, a causal effect there, you've got to tell me mechanically, mechanically, how, how. So you've got to sit there and say, okay, George, here's my whiteboard or here's my legal pad. And when the Fed expands its balance sheet, this allows the banks or this incentivizes the banks to do X, Y, and Z. And when the banks do X, Y, and Z, the hedge fund managers have more liquidity to go in and buy the stocks they wanted to. You've got to show me how that works. And then you've got to show me why the banks can't create that liquidity without the Fed's balance sheet. And then you've got to tell me why those hedge funds or those pension funds can't just borrow against those treasuries that they own that they would have sold to buy the stocks. Why can't they just borrow against those in repo to get the cash? You see, when you look at the mechanics behind what's happening, there's all, you can just, it's like Swiss cheese. You just sit there and poke holes in it all day long. But unfortunately, what a lot of these people do is they just take that stuff for granted. They don't even think it through. They just assume, they just look at this chart and say, well, that's that's it right there. Enough said. No, 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 no. You, you've got to show me the mechanics because if you can't show me mechanically how this incentivizes the banks, if you can't show me how it increases their balance sheet capacity, if you can't show me why on earth a hedge fund that wanted to buy stocks would have to wait to sell their treasuries in order to generate the cash to do that. That is nonsense. That, that's a complete misunderstanding of how a balance sheet works, or at least a financial institution's balance sheet. And the liquidity, that's a complete misunderstanding, right? There is no hedge fund ever that said, you know what? Boy, oh boy. We would love to buy stocks right now. We'd love to buy stocks, but unfortunately we can't. Because we have all these stupid treasuries that are just yielding like, I don't know, 1%, 2%. And they're just sitting here on our balance sheet. But we don't have any way to get rid of them. And if only an entity like the Fed would come and buy these treasuries from us, then all of a sudden we could go and buy all of these stocks that we wish we had. See, when you say it out loud and think it through, it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. 
But this is what the experts just assume to be true. Why? Because they don't think it through. Look, I, these guys are way smarter than I'll ever be. Way smarter. But they're just not retired with nothing else better to do than sit here and research this stuff for a YouTube channel where they do whiteboard videos. <laughs> that's, that's the only difference. So I got nothing better to do. And for some reason, I like geeking out on this stuff. If they spent half as much time as I spend, I guarantee you they'd be saying the exact same stuff. So another thing that this is predicated on, and I use this chart over and over and over again, is the fact or the assumption that mechanically, if the Fed does QE, then it's going to drive down interest rates. Well, I, I've showed this chart so many times, I'm not even going to show it again, but you guys have seen it. And you look at a chart of QE relative to interest rates, the 10-year treasury yield, when they do quantitative easing, right here, the shaded black, the shaded gray line here, QE. When they did this, QE1, interest rates went up, not down. So again, guys, and same thing with QE2, same thing with QE3. So if you're going to sit there and argue that mechanically, that's why stock markets go up, you're going to have to tell me mechanically why the stock market still went up when interest rates did the opposite of what they should have. Now, getting back to the, the parts that I totally agree with, and I think that make a lot of sense here, the first chart that we showed you that Lance pointed out was the Fed funds rate hike, or excuse me, the Fed funds drop. I don't know why that took so long there. Uh, the first drop of the Fed funds rate or the entire cycle uh, relative to the max drawdown of the S&P. That was the Fed rate drop. Now we're talking about the Fed rate hikes. So as the Fed is hiking before they drop, he points out that there's usually some strong drawdowns as well. Uh, more recently, we have had a drawdown of 24.71%. So one of the arguments that I think is, is very, very good and insightful that Lance makes is that, hey, maybe with this next round that the drawdown won't be as severe as you would expect by looking at this chart because we've had such a significant drawdown during, or max drawdown, I should say. It's not a, a really a drawdown because we're about flat now, but you just talked about the max drawdown. Uh, since we had such a steep max drawdown with the Fed rate hiking cycle, maybe we'll have less of a drawdown once they start dropping rates. That's kind of the punchline here, uh, at, at least the way I, uh, I, at least the way I read it. And here's another very interesting chart. So they try to project forward and say, okay, let's go over multiple expansion where that would take us on the S and P. That would be a no landing type scenario. Uh, the no recession, or excuse me, the no recession would be this middle kind of black line here. Uh, that takes the S&P up to just below 5,000, it looks like, uh, going into or at the end of 2024. Now, if we have multiple expansion, let's just say the market goes heavy risk on, FOMO, YOLO, all these things, because whatever the Fed does, they show how a P.E. ratio on the S&P 500 of 24.5 would take the S&P up to about 5,500. And if we do have a, a recession, a soft landing recession, by the way, and you have the earnings go from 22 to 17, point, uh, 17 then that takes us down to call it 37.50. But again, this is a soft landing. I, I kind of find it interesting. They don't do a hard landing type scenario. Uh, one of the things that I noticed that they omitted, or maybe I didn't read within the article, is they completely ignore another elephant in the room, 
which is the yield curve. So if you're looking at the yield curve, that's got to be your base case, meaning hard landing. So I don't know why they don't have that in here. But if they did, I would assume that that hard landing would take the S&P 500 down. Uh, well, that would take it down, let's just say on average, 30%, because that's what we saw in that first chart. And if it's down 30%, um, you know, what does that take you? Maybe 2,500 roughly. I'm not very good at math, just doing that right at the top of my head. But it takes you down below 3,000. All right, so main takeaways, if you're not following Lance on social media you, or listening to his podcast with Adam Tiger, you definitely need to do so. He is very underrated. The guy's really, really smart, extremely thorough. And I think this article just shows that. And uh, another main takeaway here is that although the mainstream narrative may be, hey, Fed's going to drop rates, Fed's going to drop rates, bullish, 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 bullish. If you actually study history, you see that's bearish, bearish, bearish. And then the one pushback that I would have with uh, Lance, hopefully someone gets this to him, <laughs> is Lance, when you're looking at the Fed's balance sheet, you got to look at the reserves, man. You got to look at the reserves, do those correlations. And then you've got to tell me, you got to tell me how mechanically, how mechanically remembering that the banks don't need those reserves. They don't need them. They don't even use them. And where I'm coming to that conclusion is if you look at the reserves in the system, 1980 to 2007, 40 billion, they didn't budge, but yet M2 went from 1.5 to 7.5 trillion. And interest rate Fed funds went from 15 down to five. So in order to get that Fed funds rate from 15 to five, while you have M2 going from 1.5 to 7.5, the Fed would have had to have done open market operations if, if, Banks actually used bank reserves, but they don't. And that's why you see it completely flat during that time frame. So if they didn't use bank reserves then, why on earth would they need them now? Now, it might help them if they're a Silicon Valley bank and they're going bust. I get that. But in normal times, when perceived risk is at normal levels, these banks create their own liquidity. They create their own liquidity. Any bank could have gone in there and lent the money to Silicon Valley Bank, just like the Fed did. They didn't need bank reserves to do that. Silicon Valley Bank did not need bank reserves. They just needed cash. And JP Morgan could have easily provided that cash in the form of credit. And they could have expanded their balance sheet to do so. And then, and then you've got to tell me how a hedge fund manager somehow is incentivized further to go buy risk assets when the Fed is doing quantitative easing if that quantitative easing is leading to higher interest rates, not lower interest rates. And then tell me why a hedge fund manager would sit there and do nothing with this pile of treasuries that they have on their balance sheet and just sit there and wait to buy stocks. Why wouldn't they repo those treasuries and just get the cash and then buy the stocks that they want? Them? Or for heaven's sakes, why wouldn't they just sell them? It's not like there's no buyer out there. So mechanically, I need to understand what's happening step one, step two, step three, step four, to the, the whole process from the time the Fed's balance sheet expands to the time the stock market goes up. Give me each one of those steps. Help me understand it. Because if you can't fill in those blanks, I don't think that we can, I think for me personally, that would add a lot of validity to the argument that there is a causal effect with the Fed's balance sheet and stocks. With, with no step one, step two, step three, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a very 
It's going to be, a, I'm going to be a tough sell. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> all right. But all due respect, you're doing a great job. I love listening to you and Adam riff on the markets. Okay, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.